Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Justin the Food Entrepreneur's Podcast. I'm Justin Bazaar. I'm your host. That's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O. For anyone out there who wants to find us, you can find us on Instagram at Justin the Food Entrepreneur's, or better yet, you can find us on Spotify or anywhere else you grow yourself through podcasts and listen to an episode. So today I have with us Michael Burke of Danino's Pizza from Staten Island, New York. How are you doing today, Michael? I'm great. Good morning. How's everything? Everything is great. Um, we had some technical difficulties here, but we got ourselves on the right track. So that's a relief. I feel a lot of relief right now. Uh, a lot of pressure when someone's on the phone. You're like, oh, the recording is not working properly. But the audience, I'm sure any entrepreneur knows what that feeling's like the day you turn on something or you go to work something or you have a big party and all of a sudden your stove doesn't light up or your pizza oven. So Exactly. So, Michael, tell us about your history. Tell us where you're from. How'd you become an entrepreneur? Why pizza? So, I grew up in Staten Island, basically born and raised. Um, and my stepfather owned Nino's. It's been open since 1923. The Staten Island location is the original location. Um, and he had taken it over in 1950 when his father passed away in 47. So he had started working and then in 50 he put in the pizza. So we've been around a little bit. And uh, I started working probably when I was 10, I would go in with him and, and shred cheese. And that's basically when it all started for me. And so why, like, Okay, so you're as a kid, you you go into the store. I mean, what's the first job you do? Like, what's do you fall in love with it? I guess is that the question. I mean, how do you? A lot of people don't end up in food anymore. So, as an entrepreneur, I think, and a family of entrepreneurs, like, how does this start? Like, where do you? Where are you? Like, I need to do this. This is what I want to do with my life. So basically, I started. I would go in, and you know, it was always older kids around working for us cousins family whatever so we always work together so basically it started as something fun you know you'd see and hang out with people started dishwashing you know then you started making sandwiches then pizza bartend did every job through the whole place and then basically in co after college i was uh just working in the restaurant well, I've been working in the restaurant since I'm 12, so I'm there 36 years, going on 37 years. But in Absolutely. college, I, I love this. Yeah, in college, I just said, you know, I really love it. So I did marketing management, and uh, I just felt like, okay, I'm working seven days a week, open to close, going out. And I also, you know, my father had said, you know, you got to be careful with the restaurant. You never know. They, they, more restaurants close and stay open. What about uh, pension? What about um, yeah, healthcare? Yeah. Yeah, Which are oh, two oh, of the biggest yeah. problems. Yeah, yeah, know, go on. I in love our it. Industry. So I took the fire department test and I became a New York City fireman also. And at that point, it was easy because I had my brother and my sister were still in the business with us. And uh, we all worked together, so I would work my days, had the pension and the healthcare covered. And then uh, in 2000, my stepfather had uh, passed away, and uh, my brother lives in New Jersey, so he, he really, the commute was not his favorite thing, so he opened his own in uh, Matawan. And uh, it was basically me, my mother, and my sister stayed there, kept everything going. 
And uh, after I retired from the fire department in 2010, I had a friend approach me with, he had a building in New Jersey, so we opened another location. So we have one in Brick, we have one in Matawan, we have one in Staten Island. And about six years ago, we opened, uh, I started the franchise, and we opened one in Greenwich Village in Manhattan. I love this because I love your story. I love that um, it passed from generation to generation and then the next generation, like you learn the business and you helped build the business as a young kid. So you got this skill that most kids don't get and we rob our children of it today, in my opinion, just saying like we're setting our kids up to not be better than we are as the next generation because we don't do this. And as food entrepreneurs, I think we should make sure our children get in the business, but do it in the way that you you were done. Like it was fun. It was fun to work on the farm. It was fun to have challenges in the food business. It was fun to go into the airline kitchens growing up when my dad was doing that and and work in the airline kitchens and learn what people were doing. And so like those are the things that I think that are important. I also like that you you eventually did franchise into New Jersey, even though your brother didn't do it with you guys originally you ended up going back to new jersey so it's interesting sometimes we jump off a ship and we could have ended up there anyway with a bigger pie just want to say that because we do this but either way i think you guys whatever it was destiny god you guys followed the right plan so i love this so let's talk about why your stepfather started the pizzeria like what what's his story is he from italy did like, what's his family background? Because I think there's an anchoring point because there's so much legacy and brand built into the history also, right? Yeah. So his father was from Corleone, Sicily. And uh, he had come over. You mean and... like Michael Corleone from Godfather? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he had come over and uh, my stepfather was born here in 1923. And they started a soda shop confectionery where the original building is like, it's all still in the same spot. And, you know, um, it was like a pool hall soda shop. And then in 1933, when they repealed prohibition, they started serving beer and alcohol. And in 37, they had the building next door that they put a full bar and they started a bar and small food. And like I said, in 47 is when they, they put the pizza in and a couple of other dishes. And in 51, it really took off. Yeah, I want to make a note of something um, just so everyone's aware of this historically. What, when we've made mistakes as a country, just I'm going to footnote it because you just pointed it out. But a lot of immigrants came over here like during the Great Depression, around that time period, post pre-World War II, like Italians, we come in waves. I don't know why, but all of a sudden there's like waves of us that come in and it still happens today. And it's happening right now. (laughs) And we just, like, there's something about where we get the hospitality skills in Italy um, or whatever the skill is, you know, some back in the day was bricklayers or stonemasons, also construction, because that's what America's really needing. And we get the skill over there knowing that eventually it'd come, we'd bring it over here. And hospitality is that right now. It's dying. We have no one in the food businesses. So this is what I want to anchor. Like the American dream is anchored to anyone who's not in America. If you want to get here, 
what we need is hospitality. You've got to look at the skill sets we need and then you can come in and the Italians have always done a good job of this. And I think in this case, like it's also what we bring over is work ethic and, and the American dream and stuff like that, just like other cultures. But what I really like about this is the hardship and the work ethic. So, I mean, Staten Island is off of Manhattan. So it's not like a mainstay, but it's growing city. So I think like it's becoming more, um, actually that's what I want to say is it grew to become part of Manhattan more over the years, especially through the fifties and sixties and seventies. Um, and I like Staten Island a lot. I think it's so different. So let's talk about this. You have a pizza place, you're growing up in the business, like at what point do you start getting to make decisions or are involved in the management or like, because I think that passing down from generation to generation is something important and we don't talk about it enough on the podcast, but you've successfully done. And I mean, I know your stepfather passed away and that was hard. And I want to touch on that too. Like you also had 2000, you were a volunteer firefighter, 9-11 happened in that time and you're also taking on, on a new business and separating from a brother business-wise so you really like at that point in your life are at this like juxtaposition juxt whatever of like life like coming at you so there's two points there one I want to talk about the American dream uh, actually three points the second one is I want to talk about passing down the baton to a younger generation and how it was done with you and then third I want to talk about sort of that trial and tribulation in your life. You were a volunteer fireman. You have a pizza place. Your stepfather. New York. No, away. I was. New, I was a New York City fireman. New York Kid. City fireman. Yeah, there you yeah. go. We don't. We don't say volley out here. Volley. Sorry, <laughs> I don't mean volunteer. No, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's just. Uh, I don't no. know why I said that. Actually, it was just no, totally involuntary. Right. My bad. Yes, I. I. No, that's fine. I. Uh, I'm actually glad you said that because it is no. an important note. Um, Listen, we appreciate the volunteers, but. We uh, yeah, I worked in uh, Brooklyn and uh, I worked a couple of years in Staten Island also. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I really no, I apologize no, because I know New York. I've lived in New York, but I do know how important it is and how important a job it is. So, um, yeah. but anyway, so my fault on that, guys. But let's go to this, and I don't want to take any respect away from you guys because you guys work really hard, especially in New York City. And so let's, since we're on that topic, let's talk about. Like how did how do you manage being a firefighter and be and running a restaurant? Like how do you work that out with your family? Um, do you have a family of your own? Um, and you're retired now, I believe you said. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm retired now. Yes. But how did you manage all that? Because you're you're like in life and death situations potentially. Plus, you're trying to get a business, which as an entrepreneur, sometimes it feels like life and death. But it, um, I tell you, it, it's tough because the family is the one that suffers the most. So, I mean, I was, you know, I was young. My wife was only 22 when we got married. We, I have two kids now. My son's uh, going to be 20 and my daughter is 18. So she was basically raising a family. I would go from the firehouse to the restaurant, to the firehouse, to the restaurant. So it was, you know, constantly every day working. And she had to pick up all slack at home, you know, until I retired and I could be home a little more. But, 
you're never home more because something's always wrong, like you said, at the restaurant. What's not working? Who doesn't show up? And you have to go in. So it, it's tough now because you, you brought up a good point about the next generation. It's scary because the next generation, one, I don't think has the work ethic. You know, you were sick, you were dying, you were still at work. Yes. You know, these kids have a different mentality. And now COVID's made it so easy that, oh, I think I have COVID. You don't have to come to work. Yes. So yeah. it, that's one of, the, one of the big hurdles that the restaurant industry has to go through. You know, and they also don't interact with people like we did. You know, as a kid, you're talking to adults respectfully and looking them in the eye where these kids don't want to talk to anyone. They're ordering food on DoorDash or, or Grubhub or Uber Eats. You know, so that's also taken away from the restaurant business and all this industry that we see, like you said, as a dying breed. Yeah. I, I want to touch on some one of the things that you said we talked about prohibition, which really hurt the restaurant businesses just like COVID did because restaurants served alcohol back in the day, guys. And in the middle of the Great Depression, we basically cut our bottoms out from under us. So like, oh, it's alcohol. That's why everyone's bad and doesn't want to work. I get it's the holder of the gun, not the gun itself. Like, just so we're all aware of this, guys, like we have hum we're humans and we have control over ourselves. But anyway, we do things like this as a government every so often and all countries, nations, empires have done historical stupidities like this. But what, what I want to talk about is there's hardship in it. And so I just wanted to anchor back to a point where prohibition did a lot of economic damage to the businesses in the world during the Great Depression. And we still did it knowingly that it could do that because we thought it had a moral and ethical value to it. And so it's no different than what we've experienced now. All the restaurant businesses in the world has really suffered. And I've been in New York for a while, and I've been driving around to visit people. And one of the things I find interesting is the world stopped for two years. However, we didn't work on the infrastructure. It's not like, oh, there's no one on the road. Let's go pave the roads while there's no one out there. That's not what happened. All the money went towards COVID and medical and not towards food and not towards schools and not towards infrastructure. While there's construction in a lot of places or maybe there's new schools being built, it wasn't like those things maintain themselves. Okay, then we put everyone back on the roads and back into the things and back into the you know, demanding food in the world and with broken infrastructure everywhere. And so, like, it's just reckless. And it's like cutting someone off, then winding them up and letting them loose when when things are deteriorating. And it's just New York City, I, like, I used to live here and I've been in since 2004, three is when we started uh, negotiating the New York City contract. And then 2004, Five January, we took it over and did all the New York City hospitals until August here. And so I'm familiar with the roadways. I'm familiar with the the routes. I'm, but it's just like all of a sudden everything stopped here. And while everything stops and we think we stop as human, nature doesn't stop. It doesn't stop decaying the roads or putting potholes in the road. And it's not like it's great in the first place. But you can tell that there's been some infrastructure. Some reason the train system is like phenomenal. I don't know. There, a lot of money was put into that. So like during COVID apparently, because I can tell the difference between the trains and the subways versus the rest of the infrastructure. I'm not quite sure why that is, but it's for another conversation. So my point is this. 
New York City has a huge amount of pride. There's pride in the food. There's pride in the fire department. There's pride when you go through obstacles. Like New York City and the neighborhoods rally together. So talk to me. I don't want to go back to 2001 just because I think it's a hard time. And if you want to talk about it, we can. But let's sort of jump to COVID. Um, And if you want to go back, we can. But if not, let's talk about COVID and sort of the past experience have maybe prepared you for this experience and you're growing four locations in the middle of COVID. So how do you deal with all that? Like you're now the man, right? I assume that you run things with your sister and your mom and, but you're the guy running around. They're basically retired now. So it's basically me. Yeah. My son is when he's back and forth from college, he's in the restaurant like I did in the kitchen you know, because they think that's the fun place to be. So, you know, he he likes it in there, fooling around with the guys back there, getting, uh, you know, getting things done. But you, I, I just want to say you did bring up a great point. You look at prohibition and you look at COVID. And who benefited from that? The black market and the criminals. Because they were making money selling alcohol, right? Just like in COVID... The people that stayed open, there were speakeasies and hidden. They made money. They made an exorbitant amount of money. And the guys that actually went by what the city said and they locked us down, we all suffered. I agree with you. You know, it's it's history repeating itself in a different form. Yep. And, And I will say, I can't believe, like, the neighborhoods in New York really rallied around you guys and tried to protect the restaurants and, and make the business. But I've never... New York City really took on ticketing people and making sure people weren't gathering. And, you know, it was um, very similar to Prohibition. I can't even tell you the parallels. It's just so weird. And it's just almost the exact amount of time where everyone that was alive during Prohibition is dead, so we forgot about it. It's like that yep. type of weird thing. And... It really, I agree with you. It just, you're right. The criminal activity and the ability to stay open was we had to break the rules if you were going to stay open. You didn't have a choice. Yeah, our store in Manhattan, basically because now, remember, the city shut down. No one's going to work there. People are working from home. So you, you got two years. It was so touch and go. Still to this day, international tourism isn't back to where it was. We're just getting tourism back in the last eight months. So the, the Manhattan location suffered immensely because the people just weren't there. You know, they closed three months. We didn't even open the doors for three months. I, and I agree with you on the tourism, too. One of the things I've noticed about being in New York and doing, I've gosh, I think I've been up here now over a week. And... Um, and it's New Year's. Like, there's the dropping of the ball that just happened. And there's no one here. I am, like, like compared to what New Year's used to be in the amount of blocks and now amount of people needing restrooms, like, it was not that. And, and even this morning they said the news that they're going back to mass. They're still scaring people that don't live in the area with the, the whole COVID. And believe me, it, it's out there. I, I know... 20 people had COVID. It's not as deadly as it was, but it's still out there and people are still afraid. Yeah, and we got to keep in mind. I I went through COVID in, I went through the beginning parts of COVID, the major parts in Colorado, and then 
In August of 2020, we moved to Georgia to open the facility there, and and Deborah and I, my ex, an ex co-host of the show, actually, ironically, like we moved to Georgia to try to get the facility up on ground. But I gotta tell you guys, like I have never experienced my own government attacking me as an entrepreneur in the way that happened during COVID. And I use the word attacking because I cannot figure out for the life of me why they did such damage to me. the amount of money they gave away to employees, particularly in food businesses, to not go to work. The um, the amount of stealing of the trucks that had refrigeration that they needed for medicine. But yep. the reality is, is you could have just used the same trucks you were already using for medicine. If you're not using the other medicines, just put the, that medicine on there because we forgot about all the other medicine and medications. We should just put it on those. But you stole the food trucks and never used them. And then all the refrigeration trucks and then never used them and then set up temporary hospitals and we never used them. And so it's just like we got so far ahead of ourselves. I get it. We want to plan for a disaster, but we didn't plan for what happens if there is a disaster. We need to feed everyone and give them nutrition. And it was just like, okay, like we just, we played checkers, not chess. And it's just becoming more and more common in our politics as our country. And in uh, New York city, I see it like just still, I'm just blown away by the reactionary decisions. And the mass, what my point was is, and now I live in Nashville, and I don't see a mask ever. Like, I don't, maybe once in a blue moon. Like, even in Georgia, they were starting to come back in because the politicians were scaring people that they were going to get COVID again. So people started rallying in Georgia to wear masks again as, uh, last summer in 2022. Yeah. And, but it's not doing anyone any favor if you're trying not to economically hurt people i'm going to just tell everyone this and i've been in the food business as an entrepreneur 25 years as a family 1984 whenever that was when my dad started in it and um so you know 39 years ago 38 years yeah yeah and so and then food service partners started with my father and business partner in a basement in 1998 so like i've been doing this a long time and humans and i was in health care long-term care homes i was in the compromised population and children by the way children's hospitals so i know those populations not healthy children in school that we feed them crap and try to drive them to the hospitals but I'm yeah. talking about what we do and not helping them with our food because of politics, because of international politics, international companies involved in our food service on a massive scale in this country. We don't control it as Americans, just so we're all aware. And, um, and we make decisions that harm our food system and cause damage. And we don't care because we don't see we're not attached to the food anymore like they go in and you're right they buy a pizza and it's delivered to us they never see the pizza made they never see how many employees are working they're never attached to the tip like it's just a blind transaction with no emotional feeling or understanding of the humans that are actually putting in the work i mean it used to be like people go to a restaurant and be a part of the community we just don't have that anymore yep and so michael i really um I want to talk about this um, a little bit. So, like, do you change your menu 
well, actually, let me go back. How did you get through COVID? Like, what do you do in your restaurants to get through it? Like, you have to close the Manhattan store for three months. We talked about that. What about the other stores? So the other stores were okay. Um, and actually, Jersey, you know, which took a lot of business from New York because they opened up way before us. They were doing indoor. People actually just going over the bridge, especially, you know, Staten Island, surrounded Bayonne. You got Woodbridge, then you get the, the shore. Our two bridges were 10-minute rides, and you were sitting down in restaurants like nothing was going on. And meanwhile, New York was completely shut down. It was takeout only. I just, I, I can't even imagine because it just wasn't my experience where I could go over a border and have a totally different human experience. Oh, it's insane. And then you look, you look at Long Island, Queens and Long Island, one street, one side is Queens, the other is Long Island. They were eating in Long Island, but New York City was shut down. It, it was just insanity. It just didn't make sense. So the people from Staten Island were going to New Jersey, so they weren't infecting anybody or they couldn't get infected. It just, the the, the city made no sense in how they went about it. Well, and it's interesting, just so everyone's aware, I don't know if we're going to get flagged this episode, but every time I talk about COVID on an episode, as the episode loads, it flags, like they must go through the words and I have, and it puts up a banner on the episode. If anyone goes to Spotify, they can see this or, and I think iTunes does it as well now. But if you mention COVID, they give a little information bar across the top. This is COVID information. And I find it so interesting, like we've made such an emphasis on it. More people still have died of flu overall, guys. And we don't put a thing, a warning on the flu when I mention it on the podcast. So it's not to be a jerk. And I'm not saying it's not important. We shouldn't take it seriously. But we should be realistic and logical and, and not base everything off emotion and feelings. Okay? So that's what happened here. We got so reactionary. That's feeling. That's feeling, <laughs> exactly. guys. Like we just – at some point we just have to – you can't react so quickly that, it, that the, the, the reaction is going to cause more damage than the outcome okay long term like you really have to think about that as a leader and the legacy that you leave and i think that we're talking about that a little bit here it's like okay i have a what am i going to do so like does the takeout business do you i mean do you so latch yeah, on to that back to, going back to your original question yeah. thank god we already had in place for about um a year we had the third party deliveries because we never really delivered i just always felt like the quality of food once you put it in the box isn't the same. So we wouldn't, we never really delivered. We had pickup, um, takeout, dine in, and then we started doing because we were losing business to other places that did DoorDash because people just they don't want to talk on the phone and order a pizza. They want to hit the button on their phone and whatever is closest or easiest. So we had that in place. And then uh, during COVID, we started actually delivering. We just had kids that weren't in school because schools were closed. They were actually coming in and thank God for them and thank God for the delivery because that's what basically got us through. You know, and you know, right off the bat because the restaurants closed, you're losing 30, 30 to 35% just in alcohol sales. And that was the other thing, right? Like that's like, I don't even know how to describe it. Like even that, like, in when people come in the store, you make money off the beverages. You make money like those are your line items that you start to spread margins. And so I just I don't know how everyone dealt with it, but 
it was the craziest thing I've ever experienced. I, I don't know how to describe it. And it's the most reckless economic decision ever. And whoever's running the economics of any country in the world at this point, we're in trouble because like we're driving blind because we don't understand the economic impact of what we're doing. So you get through this, you have the third party delivery like why you said you hadn't done them before what's your experience now i mean you've gone through covid you used them are you using them in manhattan and like what's your experience with them because i I don't talk about it enough and i mention it but like do you have a good experience with delivery drivers i mean other parts of the country that i go to they have a lot of stolen food and stuff like that and the dishonest drivers issues that I think people are trying to work through. But what about here in New York? I never really talk about it. Is New York have the same type of issues? It, I don't know. You know, you know, it's, it's um, sometimes you have a problem once in a blue moon, but you know, those platforms, they look to, they definitely compensate you and the customer because I guess they just, they put that into their bottom line. They know they're going to have these issues, but We've, uh, in Staten Island and uh, a couple of them, we've gone exclusive with Uber Eats who seem to have been working harder. They lower the prices because when these first came out, they were taking 28% from the restaurants. And that's why we never did it also. You know, I had worked out deals to get a lower percentage. But the, it, it's insanity. You know, and that's what also boggled my mind. So you have no problem going on DoorDash and paying 28% more or 20% more for an item than just calling on the phone and having it delivered or pick it up. Yet when they come in the restaurant and they'll say, oh, can't believe your pie is $17. I says, but you, you order on DoorDash, it's 22. You don't complain about that. You know, so it, it's just, it boggles my mind. Well, and I'm in 100% agreement. And I want to just point out something. This is what happened to farmers over the, once we industrialized farming, just so everyone's aware. And the same thing's happening in the food businesses because we've industrialized food and entrepreneurism in the food business through apps and direct delivery apps like Uber, Postmates, stuff like that. And I agree with you. Uber is making a huge push. They're giving a lot better incentives to the drivers. Like I'm on the DoorDash side because I want the underdog and I want someone to give Uber Eats a run for their money because I don't want a monopoly. Um, because And I believe DoorDash at this point is the only one doing it but here's the weird part about doordash just so we're all aware they're stash marts so they're also in like the delivery market they have like they deliver direct to the consumer which is cool they fill the gap at night when no one else can do it or during the day when no one else is doing that type of food they're filling a gap i guess so it's almost like a grocery store direct to you they have them and they're building made a lot of them in every city the other thing that they're doing is they're building their own ghost kitchens to do their own food so the way DoorDash is going to market and going after Uber is different than the other companies. Like they're pivoting in a different way that I find very interesting, which is almost creating the kind of competition I think is important in the market. My only yeah. thing is, is, and I will tell this to everyone, is my scared part about this is we're starting to allow these 
delivery services to be the gate for our customers. And if we get busy as a restaurant, they'll actually, the algorithms in these companies keep us from getting more business in. Like it's like, oh, they're busy. We don't want to do bad or have our drivers waiting. So we're going to push less orders there by pushing a different pizza place to the top. And I get it. You're trying to regulate and make sure the cash goes and capture as much money as you can and push down wait times. All those things are important from my freaking mental state if I only care about the bottom line. But what we're missing when we put these type of people and we did the same thing in farming between the farmer and the consumers ultimately or or the consumers and the restaurants is we're losing that human contact interaction. And because we're losing it, the restaurants are being robbed of the magic and the lightning that actually made us special which is our relationship, which is our personal branding in our restaurants is that face-to-face stuff. So whatever company is going to win, I will tell you this, it's not going to be about market share. It's going to be about eventually figuring out how to take care of the entrepreneurs because everyone swallowed up this big theory. Now they're having ghost ghost kitchens, which will compete with uh, entrepreneurs also in the markets that compete. So it's just like whoever's going to figure that out, the chain's they're going to figure out to do whatever. They've already sort of distanced themselves from the customer anyway, in my opinion. That's just the way chains do things. But the entrepreneurs, like who's the company out there delivering for the entrepreneur and making sure they get paid the bottom line? I think Uber Eats is starting to get that um, just because they have such a personal touch with the drivers also and get the importance of independent business people using this as part of their business in life or entrepreneurs that supplement their life with uber or uber eats or doordash or whatever so i get all of this um i just wanted to make note of that just because i want everyone to be aware that these companies are so big now you can lobby and we can come together as groups and say this is what we want and you can go to these delivery services say hey as a group, we'd like to see this, or as me, I'd like to see this, and they will potentially listen if you have volume. So, I, go ahead, Michael. I, I will say half of our success is basically generational customers because I remember as a kid coming in and people would be there on their first date. I see them now with their grandkids you know, or great grandkids. So we were lucky because we started as a local neighborhood bar. There was dock workers coming in. There was business guys and they would sit there and the family was come meet them. They would play video games, play with the pool table. Everyone hung out and that was a destination for them. It was like a treat. Now everyone eats out seven days a week because no one wants to cook, but that's a different story. So these families come in, they move away and they still come back when they visit family and then they come together with maybe 10, 15, 20 people. Because I've got to say the last week, especially around Christmas, we had a lot of big parties because they're all getting to getting back together and they're coming back to childhood memories and creating memories for their family. So I do see, you know, a lot of young kids, oh, my grandparents used to come here or my grandparents met here and. So that's one of the greatest joys I see that they're still coming back. And and that's how we've also gotten around where there's people in California, people in Florida, um, London. We've had people come in or come back because they like, you know, when you walk in the door, it's, it's that cheers feeling, you know, 
we know their name, you know, there's a history. So that is what I'm afraid restaurants are losing or, or will never experience. And we don't, we don't realize as humans, how important food is to our dynamic, to our socialization, to how many times we come together during a day. And it's just one of those things that I agree with you. There's so many dynamics, like how many first dates or how many engagements are there around food and, um, and travel around food. And back to the New York City thing, I'm going to tie this to this, is when we get rid of tourism to places like New York, New York's a travel place. People go there. Like, it's a romantic place to go if you're not from New York. It's a romantic place to go around if you're in New York. And I know it seems weird to say that, but there's just, it's so awesome. And there's so much food. And no matter what borough you're in, like, it's just amazing like whether it's like jackson heights queens which is like little india for lack of a better term where you get all the the indian food and you know and you go out to staten island it's staten island i've had some of the best pizza of my life i love it out there and you know it's just one of those things where it's i don't know how to describe actually there's a really good restaurant i have to think of the name out there but it's it's just one of those things where it's not just manhattan and these five boroughs, there's so much culture in these cities. So I agree we need to bring more people there and stuff like So I'm going to ask you the next question, Michael. As a firefighter, as an entrepreneur, as someone who grow, grew up in an entrepreneurial family, what are the core values that have sort of anchored you as a human to get you through all, all the hardships in life? I mean if we're talking all the way back to 2001, you had 2001, the financial crisis, and now COVID just on a large scale. That doesn't include when milk prices go ballistic or fuel prices go crazy and fuck us all as food entrepreneurs, for lack of a better term. And um, and we just deal with it. That's life. I, I say they fuck us, but we just roll with the punches and it's just another day at the park. But exactly. it's, um, but it's um, so I don't want people to get it wrong. And... Um, because it doesn't happen to us. It often happens for us. I want to just make that clear. But what are those core values? I, I, I think keeping a strong family, because that's what's going to get you through everything. You know, like like you said, if, if you don't have a good support system, like being fair to not only, you know, friends and family, even to strangers and being generous. Like, you know, we try to, support a, a lot of different charities and and, um, and help others take what we need but be willing to to help someone else and give to others i i think that is one of the biggest things my stepfather is one of the most generous people in the world i said we would be multi-millionaires if we had all the money he just gave out and lent to people but that's the way he was, and that's the way you know. That's the way we are. We're very, very big with St. Jude, um, Tunnel to Towers, and uh, a local uh, charity, Echo, Emergency Children Help Organization. Especially anything with kids that are sick or, or need anything. That's like, I feel like one of the biggest values is to give back. I agree with you, and I, I um. 
I mean, I assume you're Italian just based on the name, but um, and I'm, I'm assuming your stepfather was, and um, but the um, the core values are there, and I think the the wanting to be involved in the community and give back, I think is just part of it, and I think there's probably a little bit of Catholic guilt in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but um, if I were to be honest, and and everyone to be straightforward, but um, yep. the um, it's just so powerful because I agree with you. I think that giving in our generation looks a little different. Like I think we're more protective of our money because we want to give to those who give to us a lot, also, and then have the ability to give to others. And so there's a, we compounded a little differently. We compounded family and families also the individuals that work for our business. Um, so there is a slight distinction. Um, I think we're, well, the older generation wanted to take care of the employees. I'll refer to them as employees in the older generation case and really wanted to help the community and be a part of the community and look good in that way. Um, and then Catholic guilt and, I would say that the next generation, I think more like Michael, I think it's more like, okay, let's take care of the team members, not just the employees. We worked alongside of them when we were how young, so we have a different perspective. Yeah. And we take care of them first, and then and then our family, and then when there's abundance, we then can help take care of the community. That doesn't mean I don't give away dollars or help out people on the road. Um, homeless people and people that are freezing I'm like here's like six bucks like get a coffee or something and if you like getting alcohol at least it's keeping you warm because alcohol does keep them warm guys I don't yeah. you know everyone's like oh they're gonna throw it away on alcohol good if it's cold <laughs> outside hello like I'm just like we don't think and so and it's not our business to decide what we do with it like once we give away the money we've done exactly. our good deed it's their responsibility we don't need to own it any further it's like when we give gifts to people and we don't like the way they use the gift it's like you gave it to them like it's no yep. longer yours to be judgmental of and yep. so it's the same thing here a little bit um that we're talking about is you've um is um is how then do you build a team how how do you michael you know instill these core values that you're talking about into your team like how do you do it every day because you have it with your family and i don't remember all the other ones we said but what really how do you make it part of all four locations because it's not just one location you're managing you're managing four and so you're managing four different management teams right so what is that like because we don't really talk about what that's like as a manager at all on this podcast so it's that that's almost the hardest part only because it's not like it used to be you know the turnover and employees is so much higher you know i have four uh five guys that are with me 30 plus years you know you don't find that anymore you know which is good in some ways because they're doing better things like these guys that work for me we were kids together working they're still here their kids they're becoming teachers firemen they're doing better than their parents did which we hope for all our kids you know so it's not like they're basically my family, these guys. They've been with me since I'm 12 years old, 10 years old. We all grew up together. So it's hard to, to get that 
that whole teamwork together because nobody's there long enough anymore. You know, kid works a year, goes to school, and he's gone. So you're constantly training and bringing new people in. They see the benefit if they stay there. You know, it's got to be something. We're doing something right if guys stayed there 35, uh, 36 years. But in the same matter, they want to do better. They want to be the owners. They want to be, you know, doctors or not a lot of people want to be in the restaurant business anymore. They see the stress. You know, they see some of the hardest parts because they get to deal with customers. Listen, 99% of the customers are great. There's 1% that are never happy no matter what you do. You can bend over backwards. Yeah. They, they could be abusive <laughs> yes. for no reason. Maybe yes. they just had a bad day. Yeah, and absolutely. I try to explain to these kids, I said, listen, his mother could have died an hour ago. You don't know. You don't know what they're going through. Yeah. It's hard. And don't judge them on one time. Don't judge someone on their worst moment. That's horrible. Like People have their worst moment. It's okay. Go on. Yeah. I love this, Michael. Yeah. So I'm lucky, whereas, and this is another reason why I franchise. So Manhattan, the kid worked for me for 27 years, right? Another, like a brother, right? He's got to deal with this. He's got his team. So he manages that. My brother has his team and he's great. He's a great motivator. You know, the kids love working with him. He's got a lot of friends, kids working. So I think it's, who you're surrounded by, that's who your team's going to be because your friends are going to send their kids. They're going to work with you. The people that work for you want to bring their kids in. And I think that also makes it easier because now when you have someone's son that works for you and the parent is there, they're going to keep them in line too, or they're going to motivate them to go to work, make some money. And, and I see the difference in New York and New Jersey, New Jersey, the kids, when we opened, I still have like 30% of them. Some of them went into service. Some went college, moved away. But we still have the kids that are still in the area, went away to school, came back. They stayed. Those kids actually are responsible. They pay for their insurance. They pay for their gas. Not to say that all New York kids are spoiled, but these kids down there, they work because they have to. Up here, you know, I have kids showing up to deliver in Mercedes trucks. I said, what are you doing? I said, do you think somebody wants to give you a big tip when you pull up in a Mercedes and they're driving a Dodge Dart? You know, it's just these kids, they, they don't realize certain things, what they have and how lucky they are. And they just... I don't know if it makes them lazy or they just don't have to do it and don't care. Well, And they're horrible communicators. Like, come on, guys. If you just leave someone a note or text them, you're on our way. I know it takes an extra 30 seconds and you're worried about those 30 seconds adding up. But I will tell you, you make more money by giving customer service. Your tips will go up overall and yeah. people will give you more money, especially if it's pizza. Yeah. Um, if you're just give them a little extra and that's just communication. That's just a text message that you're on your way. Is there any other instructions? Like there's just so many things. A thank you. Like, geez. How about saying hello when they yeah. open the door instead of 1630? Yeah. You know? I know. Hi. How, how are you? you? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? I know. That's what? just mind boggling. Like, <clears throat> you know, if I, I didn't say how, if someone said, how are you? And do. I didn't say good, how are you back? 
I don't know. Like, I just imagine the back of my dad's hand coming towards me. Like, I can see it. I can even see the hair, the, like, yeah. the veins on it. Like, yeah, how are you? Be polite. Be worldly. Understand. If you don't like it, shut the fuck up and we'll talk about it later. And yeah. so, it like, logically and realistically, but we're not going to do it in front of everyone. It's not the time. And it was just like, okay. Like, I can ask as many questions as I want. It's just finding the time to do it. You know, and, and I and think try to teach them. But once they go yeah. out there, you don't know what's going to happen. And the only way you find out is if someone yeah. calls and complains. Yeah, yeah that's you true. Know? Well, you know, he walked up and he wasn't nice or he was nasty. I'm, like, I'm so sorry. You know. Well, and I will say this. I work a lot with the younger generation, particularly in the late 20s, early 30s in mentoring and coaching right now. And it's unbelievable how bad they are at communicating. I'm just like, if you think you should return, reply to someone, you should always reply. You should at least yeah. like, like the f post, no matter what, even if you don't like the person or you don't respect them or whatever beef you have in this world, you need to reply and hold up a reputation and character of doing the right thing. And like that simple task in this world, we are communicative creatures. That's how we get by. And we judge and build trust off the ability to communicate. And that's the other thing I find. Like, they're less trusting of a generation, even though they're more open, vulnerable, and quote-unquote authentic. The problem is, is they're less trusting ultimately. And because they don't build the long-term relationships like what you were talking about. Because when we didn't have everything, everything wasn't so instant. We built things longer term. And so our relationships are longer term. And so trust is built over a longer term period, not jumping from relation relationship or new boy, new boy or new girl, new girl. I meet on Bumble or whatever is apps out there or Instagram, you know, so uh, it's not that they're bad. It's just that well-rounded humans are figuring out how to actually balance these into their lives, not make it their life. And I think that's one of the important things to talk about. And then let's get back to what you were saying which is instilling these values. So you said your brother was a great motivator. Why do you say that? Yeah, because, you know, he's there too. He's there. They see him. So people, when they see you working, they're going to work. If you're doing more than the employee you're paying, a normal human being would say, I better step it up a little. So if you're doing the job, and I, I try to tell my son that, Listen, don't ask someone to do something you won't do yourself. And how many times a girl comes in and goes, oh, the toilet's clogged. I just go do it because the, the, the kitchen guy, he's already busy. He's doing something. If I can do it, I'll do it. You know, kids today, oh, this is broke. Don't want to be involved. You, you got to be able to get your hands dirty and do it yourself before you ask someone else to do it. I agree. And I used, I played soccer. Like I'm a big soccer fan. And before I learned to play a flatback four or a flatback three, depending on formation, we played with a sweeper and a stopper. It's just, it's a lazier defense, but it's, I played sweeper. I moved from like, weirdly, I went from forward to outside midfielder to outside fullback to, uh, to sweeper over the years. It's just, I was tougher, I guess. And I could run and I didn't mind going on the attack. Um, but the sweeper was, it sort of cleaned up the mess. That's why it was called a sweeper. And it, and yeah. it was in the back of the line. It just kept everything clean. And it's 
to me, it's who I am as an entrepreneur. Like I see it as a servant leader also. And I misused the term and I've been mad at it before and another podcast I do. But now that I've really got a grasp on what it means, it's it's that. And it's exactly what you said. I can't ask anyone to do anything that I'm not willing to do or show them that I'm willing to do. And I can't go into life not setting these examples or expectations in my business and setting a level of standard and keeping everyone in check. And it doesn't mean I do it as like in a showy way. However, I need to make it showtime, meaning I do it, I do it well, I do it the way I would expect everyone else to do it times two because whatever I do, they're never gonna do it as good as I do. So I need to know that I need to set a higher standard always because they're never gonna get there. No team member's ever gonna have the entrepreneur standard. It's just not in the DNA. Would you agree with that? 100%. And so let's talk about your wife. Um, obviously, she was uh, a cornerstone in your life, and family's a cornerstone. She, I can't think of two more riskier jobs, one financially and one life-taking. I mean, I guess policemen and military. But like firefighter in New York, the size of the buildings, the fires, that stuff, I'd say it's pretty dangerous. So... That's a lot to take on, right? There's so she has to be a pretty solid individual. I have to imagine she she raised her kids. So, what are the qualities about her that you love and you feel that that you've been successful as a business and as a human and as a man because of her? And what are those qualities? Well, she's very very strong, you know, and very family oriented. You know, she had a, a great family so they had a, a nice normal living her father's a retired cop her mother also worked in in uh, one of the colleges so i say normal because anyone that grew up in the restaurant business it's not normal you know who's you're not eating dinner together who's not going to a wedding who's missing this because i had to work or who didn't show up so she had that core that every family really needs to be successful, you know, she was there with the kids every day. Um, and a lot of the nights by herself because I had to be in the firehouse overnight or I was in the restaurant and we closed, you know, 20 years ago, we were, we were open till three, four in the morning. The bar business isn't what it's, what it used to be. You know, now we're out by 11 o'clock, which is fine. You know, like, Grandma used to say, nothing good happens after 12. So she, she is actually very strong, strong-willed um, and tough, tough with the kids, which, which is a nice change from everyone being so afraid of hurting their kids' feelings or upsetting them. They need to be taught this is the way things are, and this is you're going to respect it. And luckily, my kids go out of the house and I can never worry because they are very respectful. You know, everyone is Mr. Mrs. or uncle and handshake. They look in the eyes. They walk into a room, hug, kiss, hello. And I don't see that a lot with some kids anymore. And, and, and it's also because we have a, a, a great core group of friends 
and they're like-minded and their kids are the same, respectful. And that's all you can hope for as a parent, you know, that the kids can go out there in this world and be able to take care of themselves, be respectful and take care of your, your family name and take care of themselves. Okay. And I'm going to anchor a few points here, guys, just because I think they're important as having ex stepkids, which are still my stepkids in my opinion. Um, and, and seeing that and learning stuff and then just being a grower of humans. It is important that we anchor this. Um, you said that m you have the same mindset. It doesn't mean that you have the same political beliefs, maybe even same religious beliefs, probably not even in the same businesses, probably not even whatever, but the mindset is the important thing. Do they believe in the growth of their children? Do they believe in doing it in a positive way? And do they surround themselves with people that have a similar mindset? Yes. It's not whether or not they agree with them or vote with them the same or whatever. That's not what he said. Yeah. Okay, like I get it. People want to talk about those things and whatever, and they become important dividers, but they're not important, especially in the United States. We're so close political party-wise to the really amount of government and politics that exist in the world and parties that we just we have a lot of similarities guys and we can do a lot more good by realizing our differences are here to grow us not divide us and so i think that that's something i want to anchor the other thing you said is she's strong and she believes in family okay here's an important thing that i don't know why but immigrant groups italians spanish you name it wherever Eastern European when when you immigrate to a new place you have no one else but your family or people humans that are similar to you or speak your language that's where you find commonality because they're going through the same struggles you and they have the same mindset as you a lot of the time even though they might not agree with you on things one of the things that happens though is there's a, fa a strong family core value that exists, the importance of family, the importance of legacy, the importance of investing in the next generation so they're better than you are, better off than you are, but maybe have more skills than you do because you can compound skills because what we're seeing in this podcast is real. When the generation before us or even the generation before that is entrepreneurial, like in my case, come from Italy, my grandfather, cabinet shop, lumber yard, accounting, gas station, he owned them all passes it down while my father's not and wasn't an entrepreneur uh, businessman we did he did start businesses and my mom was very entrepreneurial and combined they gave me what was the ability to become the entrepreneur that I am today and regardless of situations 24 years of feeding employees and hundreds of employees and hundreds of thousands of patients across the country and in grocery stores, you come to this. The most important thing when you're building a business is the spirit of a business. People say culture, that's wrong. Culture is something that happens over civilizations, okay? That doesn't happen in your business and you don't create a culture that actually impacts the world. You create spirit, okay? You can create a culture that maybe does some change and people can identify that, but people move from business to business so much you're not actually creating a culture. It's not, you're not creating a long term anymore. People jump too much. And if people stay, what you're actually creating is a spirit towards your business to accomplish something and a purpose. That's why people stay around. They believe in what you're doing. 
And so I just want to make that point as a business person and an entrepreneur that we say culture and why we build that maybe over the long run. The reality is, is we're more building spirit and positive motivation. And if we don't realize that and we let our foot off the gas in that way, our businesses become stagnant. And it's when big businesses don't do anything because all of a sudden it's like, uh, we're okay. We don't need to really be motivated. We're just trying to do well. And, you know, doing the right thing is not pushing anyone too hard. Eh, wrong answer. And so the, I don't remember my point totally is, but I want to get back to the, the family core value, <clears throat> which is finding two people that share that value, especially as an entrepreneur, it's important because you're trying to drive family core values in your business. You're trying to drive family core values in your community and you're trying to drive family core values in your children. And so if you don't have that with both parties, it's very hard to go anywhere. And I find that when the core values aren't shared by, by the couples, especially towards the children or the entrepreneur and the other spouse are both entrepreneurs in a relationship, that it becomes very difficult and the business doesn't do well and neither does the relationship. So I wanted to anchor that um, just as a point that how important it is to really understand that family core values really makes good humans, but it also makes your life easier in building a future, a legacy, whether it's a business and or a family, so on and so forth. So I appreciate that, Michael. Sorry to go on a tangent there on that. Oh, it's all right. Um, <clears throat> where are you wanting to go in the future? You talked about franchising and you've started to do that um, because you had an employee that was interested in it. So I like that, that you're investing like, hey, you've done really well. You deserve ownership and an opportunity to take a piece of the pie. This is how I want to do it. I've seen other entrepreneurs in other space do this as well as food. And it, those companies that do it outside of food, really, it's something so unique that they do really well, especially in the supplement space, nutritional space. So tell me how you're going about this. How did you come up with the idea of franchising? And like, do you go to an attorney? Did you go to a group? Like, how did you start this process? Yeah, so we had gone to a, a franchise attorney um, and he had set us up with a franchise group that writes all your paperwork down, your manuals and everything. That's how, that's how we started it. But mainly it, it came because at some point, you know, two stores going back and forth and getting them started was tough. So to take on a third store, I just felt like as the primary owner, it, it would be very tough. You know, my kids were still a little young at the time. You know, my son's a sophomore in college. Now my daughter's a freshman. So even still now to take on a third store that I had to run the day to day would be very tough. So the, the franchising was a way to go because it, it at least controls the quality. Um, you can't let them go on a tangent and change. You know, this is something we're going on a hundred years in business this year. It's something that you don't want. Holy crap. A hundred years in business. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's crazy. I don't even think there's many businesses that hit that anymore. I can't oh, I think of any. There's, there's businesses that were 70 years that didn't make it out of the pandemic. Yeah, That was the scary part. Yes. You know, so we're, we're opening next month in California, you know, and sometime in February. 
So that'll be our, our next franchise. And these guys are like-minded. Um, the one, one kid is originally from Staten Island. Um, and he wanted to do Southern California because he misses the pizza from back in New York. And he's been trying, he opened these ice places and basically Danino's and Ralph's ices, which is another business that's been around almost a hundred years have been across the street from each other since inception. So he's taking a part of Staten Island and bringing it out to the West coast. And the, I love it. it it's insane already. The buzz that's going on. So, well, and I like that. Excited. It's not necessarily, you didn't pass down the legacy only to your children, but you passed it down to the people, your team members, your other family. Yeah. as an entrepreneur and I think that that's important too that investing in the next generation and it's just that mindset that you have which we'll go back to it which is that I'm investing in everyone around me and I want everyone to grow and that's what my my job is here I'm, I'm here to do this and if I'm going to be here my way of giving the community is growing the individuals it's not just giving them a mosquito net which is cash I'm teaching them how to build the mosquito nets and I'm giving them a piece of it and I think that that's a very, very important that we note that on this podcast and what I just said and the difference in the generations as we start compounding entrepreneurialism into a third generation like you and I are doing. And um, well, I'm the third generation and, and you're compounding it into one, I guess, technically. And um, or maybe more because 100 years, I'm like just trying to fathom it. And um, and what happens is you start to realize that you need to that it's it's not only about knowledge it's not only about money it's also about the opportunity you give and it's also about the 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 legacy being more than just a retirement fund and so and giving the person the ability to have their own destiny and pass on good morals and ethics and core values to their next generation but also stand behind a core brand that they helped build Really? So I'll go back to it again. You know, we export mosquito nets galore to help malaria in Africa. Yet what we should really be doing is going over there and helping them build factories and giving them ownership in it, all of the employees, so they can build communities and then lawyers will pop up, you know, accountants and banks around that type (laughs) of thing because you create that. Instead of just going in like countries like China does and just import all their employees go strip all the minerals out of the land in Africa and don't create a single job. And all they do is extort, 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 and bribe and pay the rich people, just being honest. So it's something to think about. And on this note, what what we can do as food entrepreneurs in compounding this is we set the standard for the future entrepreneurs, for the future free markets, and for the future freedom and liberty of the world, okay? Like, the idea of independence started with this idea of entrepreneurialism and, like, the East and West Trading Company and that we could be free and that we could have our own independence and that man could create their own way. And the entrepreneur, especially in food, is, I don't know, is the absolute most, I, I don't know the word because I don't have enough, enough definitions. I'm a numbers guy, but it's the ultimate version of that. Okay. Because while 
the military and everyone protects it, the entrepreneur sets the ideology that moves forward. I want to make that, and we pass it down to the next generation. And it's important. It is tribal knowledge, part of it. But it is knowledge that we can go export to other people or export to our kids so they have it and can compound it more than we did. Okay? No different than technologies. Like, I used to have to read an encyclopedia. Don't need to do that anymore. Exactly. So, so it's just we can compound things faster, not just using the Internet. And the Internet shouldn't be responsible for everything for our children. We're responsible for it, too. So, Michael, as we start to wrap things up here, um, like I got I got a few questions that I want to quick cover. The first one is what motivates and inspires you every day to get up? You've been doing this since you've been 12 years old. Most people are like, oh, my gosh, I can't imagine doing that every day for 36 years or whatever you said. Yep, yep. And um, w- so what's your motivation and inspiration every day? My family. You know, you got to take care of, you know, I have my mother, my sister, and my kids, you know. I just want to make sure they'll they'll have a steady ground to work on and I'm at least leaving them something or or giving them a good start. That's my motivation. Yeah. I I I can see you're a very family oriented man. You grew up family oriented. I'd say New York City in general keeps that instilled in the human. Um that family orientation. Okay, next question. If you could go back to yourself 20 years ago or or to an entrepreneur that's in your situation, because it is a little bit different when you're an entrepreneur that comes out in a family business where your father or stepfather or whatever, the previous generation was more like a restaurateur or sole proprietor and an, an entrepreneur emerges. Like, let's talk about that. What would you tell yourself 20 years ago or anyone in your situation 20 years ago or even 30 years ago? Don't do it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, would, I would tell myself, basically, I would do better in school, you know, because it does, it does help in the long run. You know, you went to school and I, I always had in the back of my mind, ah, what do I need school for? What do I need this for? But I would do, I would have did better in school and definitely real estate. You know, we, we were blessed that we own the building, but I would have accumulated more real estate and make sure, especially if you're going to own a restaurant, if you can own the real estate, that is half the battle. And and I saw most, most of my friends that didn't make it through COVID because they couldn't afford the rents or, you know, they own the building. It it, it takes a little more pressure off you. Um, you got to be willing to take chances, especially, you know, as an entrepreneur, if you don't take chances, you're not going to grow. You know, it was tough. You know, when we did our renovation, we did a a renovation like 13 years ago. And, you know, my sister says, whatever you think, my mother, myself, we put our houses up to secure a mortgage to make sure we could do these renovations. You know, we put a million dollars back into a business that Everyone says, oh, you're not in the best neighborhood. Yeah, but we're there. It's going to be 100 years now. So it is. It doesn't matter what neighborhood we're in. And you see it now with all over New York. Restaurants are popping up, and they used to be the worst neighborhoods growing up. And now they're changing. So a restaurant can change an area by, by just putting something good there. You bring good things to that area. So I, I think taking chances 
saving saving money because you never know when another pandemic or or something like even the September 11th, something like that, that can really rock your business if you don't have the savings to get through it. Because you will come out again on top as long as you have the staying power. Well, and I agree um, 100%, and I like that a lot. Wow, I don't even know. I have like so many things to say about what you said because it's just so spot on. Um, I don't think... And one, one other thing I would Go say, ahead. enjoy your life before it's too late. You know, like we worked day and night, 30 years. I'm still, thank God, young enough. I'm, I'm going to be 49. Still young enough where now my kids can work a little and I can go on vacation. You know, whereas my stepfather worked, he was 77, had a heart attack on the golf course. He never really did go away for months. You know, they'd go away a week here, a week there, always worried about coming back checking on the restaurant, seeing everybody. So definitely enjoy your life. Yeah, and I think that that's part of the way you manage things differently and when you, like, give people ownership, not just physical ownership, but ownership in the tasks, ownership in the business and their team members because we grew up together in the business. Um, Even though some people may not like it and you just have to deal with that as that transition happens, especially I can't imagine in 100 years, I know what it was like in twenty four years uh trying to make transitions like that and um but i think it's just so important that you one you reinvest in the community you're putting your money back into the business you're trying to be a beacon that shows like hey we've been here 100 years it's worth this we we're going to attract back the business it's only a matter of time before new york city recovers we've seen it in the past 9-11 the city recovered the hurricane that wiped out the city. God, remember the whole city was underwater. All the transit, everything. 100-year-old railroad systems. You know, that's probably why everything's so new right now. Probably just answer my own question. But (laughs) it's, um, it's one of those things where you have, when... If no one's being hopeful, then you're right. That neighborhood's going to go down the tubes. It's going to end up like Detroit, you know? Yeah. But if there's people that still believe and are investing in beacons of the community, particularly in food, guys, food builds and restores communities, period. When people come yep. in and start putting in restaurants or, or dive bars or making authentic food in whatever situation they can afford because it's cheaper in that area that's when things are going to happen there you want to start moving your restaurants there or you want to find a location there you want to start because all of you guys are on the same mindset and generating the same buzz and energy so anyone out there you probably want to go out to staten island and park a restaurant somewhere near this okay so i'm just going to throw it out there the <laughs> the other thing that i like is that you're willing to go all the way to California and do this because you believe in the person. You're not like, oh, we need to be strategic and, you know, maybe that's not the right thing, you know, Winston, and we need to really calculate these numbers and we should probably go to uh, Connecticut first. You know, it's not like that. And then maybe, you know, you start off that way, but you're like, okay, we have this really bright kid. He worked for us a long time. He knows what he's doing. He wants to bring it out there. We're going to go to California. We're basing it around the person and the character of the person. And while it's a risk, 
because you're betting it on the person. That person's been with you a long time. He has a consistent track record. So I want to make note of that as well. It's a lot about believing in the people, um, especially the people that have been with you that have proven themselves to you over the long run um, and had that consistency. All right, Michael, last question. If you could say the thing that you love the most about being a firefighter, what was it? And if you could say the thing you like the most about being an entrepreneur, what is it? And if you could say the thing that you enjoy most about being a father, what is it? So I'm going to ask you same question, three different topics. So fireman, I guess being in a position to help people and having a brotherhood, there was nothing better in that job, you know. It's, it's the most rewarding thing when you, you know, when you can save someone's house or, or if you can pull someone out of a fire and you do it with your brothers and you know they have your back and you have their back, there's no better feeling. And I would say the New York Fire Department, just on an inter, all of our international audience, I don't think there's one well, the New York Police Department separately there's quite a bond there amongst you guys and a brotherhood that I don't think exists anywhere else amongst any other fire department as a whole. Yeah. Um, particularly after things like nine 11 or the bombing in 1993, I want to say when the first time. Yeah. And I'm pretty good with dates. So, and I try. Um, so whatever, I mean, and there's been numerous other things, right? Just the hurricane and, yeah. other issues and stuff plane like crashes and plane the crashes waves. yeah yeah and after 9-11 yeah. <laughs> yeah and so it's just crazy stuff and hardship bonds people and in the city i mean the new york fire department is i would say the chicago fire department has a bond too in not nearly New York City but because of the fires that happened way early on and it just starts to create this brotherhood through hardship and the same in New York City there are a lot of fires night early 1900s and stuff as New York City maybe 1800s I can't remember and I think it starts to bond people that hardship and then seeing how important the fire department is which is why they are paid I just want to go back to my miss what I said to volunteer I'm sorry that I said that. It's why it's so important that it is paid here because there is a brotherhood. It is an elite thing, and it takes the elite. I know a lot of people, even in the CrossFit world that I was running around with in New York, that were trying to get in the fire department and never made it. So it is that. That's how important it is. That's how serious these jobs are taken and the level of character and commitment and discipline and physical fitness it takes, I would say. So... I just want to thank you for that as someone that lived in New York City and your service and all the other firemen that are out there. Your jobs are very important, obviously, Um, especially as we go more and more electronic in the world and really, I think, feel like we're exposing ourselves to more. But who knows? Um, Safer yet more exposed to something going wrong. Um, All right. Last. okay. then how about as an entrepreneur? Entrepreneur, I would say that the thing I love the most is you're basically in control of your own destiny. You know, if you work hard, you'll do well, you know, so it it, it all depends on you. You know, there are other factors, but I think it all comes down to if you really want something and 
And if you love it, you're going to be successful at it. And I agree. And I want to attach this to the thing you said about, you know, studying and while you're in school focus. I agree with you 100%. I wish I would have done a little bit more focusing on everything early on, especially that I could have used early on. Um, I agree with that. But I also agree as an entrepreneur that you have your own destiny and part of your own destiny is learning as you go and not having pre-constructed things in your head that education can put there because as an entrepreneur you need to skate lines and you need to push boundaries that most people aren't willing to Um, I'm not talking about breaking the law or anything but I am talking about like we have to bump into the law sometimes by accident or regulations or code trying to keep our businesses alive and so um, there's that and I think that from an education standpoint for me, because I am, I do have an MBA and I did go back to school to get it more to prove that I could do it just because like particularly to my father and always pushing me and saying I couldn't do things or I wasn't as good or whatever, just tough love constantly and was that I could do it and then I did it. And so, but one of the things now as a podcaster and being able to do this podcast that I will learn that the importance of the education I got contrary to what everyone else gets from education is my ability to ask questions and anchor them against points. And that's the one thing that I didn't, I took for granted as an entrepreneur and I hear it in my, a lot of my circles as entrepreneurs that the education is not important. It was important to me to be an entrepreneur first and with, well, I got my undergraduate while being an entrepreneur. So I learned it at the same time. And I knew when my teachers were full of crap because I was living in. I'm like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. You've obviously never done it. And so those classes would be hard, but I didn't know how to handle it properly versus just being like, that's wrong. You know, I could have had conversations or more constructive, but I was too young. But as I got older and I went back in my 30s to do an MBA, it gave me the ability to ask questions and start to think on a global scale and bigger in a way that I never thought before. It also made me realize that most individuals that go out and are businessmen or sole proprietors or businesswomen, they get stuck in such a rut that they're one trick ponies. And I've never seen anything like it. Like I was surrounded by this, sorry guys, but a lot of them, mostly in my MBA program, they're one trick pony. As an entrepreneur, I know marketing, I know advertising, now I know public speaking, now I know podcasting, now I know media, now I know social media. Like, I'm a skilled man. I'm like a renaissance man. I know multiple languages, uh, barely broken, half the time can't speak it, but I understand like Spanish and stuff real well from being in the kitchens and, yep. and going around the world and exposing myself to the world. So it's like all of those things that I'm talking about. Education is not only the formal part, but it's also exposure to the world, experience in business, um, and education. So, and for me, exercise, physical fitness matches with my spirituality. So, like I live by education, exposure, experience, and exercise. And now I live by energy. And I have like eight other E's that I live by from a leadership standpoint those are the five ones that anchor me because I always try to have positive energy there as well 
as and I've stacked them, guys. It, I didn't start off with all five of them. I started off with an education, and then I got experience. And as I was getting experience, I got older. I got exposure, and then from there, I'm like, oh, I like exercise because I play sports. Maybe I should probably do this all the time, which weirdly connected my spirituality uh, and my relationship with God in a very strong way. Um, so, last one um, as a father. What do you enjoy the most? I love the unconditional love. You come home from a hard day and they would run and give you a hug and a kiss and that you can never replace that. It's a feeling that it's amazing. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, you know, and I think people get it from animals and from humans, but I <clears throat> um, have a little tear here. Sorry. Um, but I agree with you. There's nothing more rewarding than that. And it comes from hard work and it comes from not attaching your, the reward to the money. The money's what takes care of everything. And if there's more, we have more of it to pass on or more trophies to have for a bad time the where we need to put a million dollars into a business and things like that. So I agree with you, um, 100%. Um, well, Michael, you're an outstanding human. I'm going to have you back on the podcast at some point just to talk more, but maybe in, I'll reach out to you in a couple weeks when my schedule clears up because we're like packed full for the next three months, I'm mean, three weeks of recording. So I'll be quite ahead. So I'll get you on the schedule for the second round. But I'd really like to talk to you more about the core values, like the stuff from the fire department and that band of brothers that you had that you sort of have brought to your business because I can tell that it's in your family and in your business. And we'll just touch upon it next time. We'll do another Sounds episode. Um, will you tell everyone where they can find your locations, the addresses, including the franchises, where they can find you on Instagram? Um, and just repeat it more than once, including uh, your website, just because the audience will probably need to write it down. So Staten Island is 524 Port Richmond Avenue. And that's 718-442-9401. Um, Brick, New Jersey is 869 Manilokan Road. And Manhattan is 93 McDougal Street off the corner of Bleecker. And then Danino's Pizza Place is on Route 34 in Matawan, New Jersey. And if you go to Danino's.com, It'll have all, all the locations and all the history and information. Awesome. Thank you very much, Michael. That no was problem. I appreciate it. And will you spell your name fully for everyone as well, just so they have it? If they come in, they can come find you just because I think you're a really important dude for uh, you have a hundred year business. And I think people may want to come to you or come eat at your restaurant and learn uh, how you did it. M-I-C-H-A-E-L. B-U-R-K-E. Yeah, there you go. And I think Michael, guys, and I normally don't do that on the podcast, but I just, it's rare that I have someone that's trying to keep and maintain a business that's 100 years old and been through as many crises as a 100-year-old business has been through. Let's talk about wars. Let's talk about, you know, economies. Let's talk about oil crisis. Let's talk about depressions and everything else. So um, thank you, Michael. And again, that's Michael Perk, guys, like quite an outstanding human. I think anyone who's out there, reach out to Michael. Um, 
probably on Instagram. He responds there um, at um, Danino's Pizza. And um, wow, God, you blew me away today. You're just such a cool dude. So thank you very much, and I appreciate it. And anyone in the audience, you can find us on Spotify or wherever else you grow yourself through podcasts and keep rocking on. I appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you.